regular attenders will know that for over a year now, we have been working our way through the Gospel of John, and we bring that sermon series to a conclusion this morning by reading the entirety of the last chapter, chapter 21. The words will be on the screen behind me, but if you'd like to follow along and keep your scriptures open, you can look at that up on page 1078 of your pew Bibles. Again, this morning, we're looking at all of John chapter 21. It says, after this, after meeting with his disciples in the upper room, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the lake, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled, excuse me, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. 
And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the other disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciples that the, this, this disciple was not to die yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die but if it is my will that he remain until I come what is that to you this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning I'm going to be talking about rivalries. And at times, rivalries can be really fun, especially in the area of sports. We think about how uh, when you face your rival, there's that extra amount of attention and focus on this particular game. And you could lose all of the other games of the season against every other team. But if you win against your rival... Well, then you've had a successful season, and it's fun to have that kind of extra energy and focus around those rivalry games. But also, rivalries can be soul-sucking experiences when they are available in real life. As I alluded to already to the young children, we do love to compare ourselves with others. And often when we do that in different areas of life, in school or in business or in our friendships, what often happens is a destruction and division because we don't like those comparisons. You wonder, why is it that you have to spend hours every single night studying hard for all of your subjects to barely pull a B-? But your friend gets to just walk through life, do all kinds of other activities, and gets their easy A. In business, you look at the decisions that you make, and the person that might be down the block or at the next land over, and, and they just seem to slide. They make the timing is just right, and all of the decisions that they make, they know exactly when to do things, and, and you're hardly doing anything different, and yet they seem to prosper and have all opportunities open to them, but you're struggling, and the finances aren't there. Or you from a distance or nearby see a couple that it's abundantly clear that they just love being in each other's company, that their relationship is strong, and when they're in public it appears that everything is going well. And you know what your relationship is like at home and you wonder, why can't we have that same kind of depth or experience? 
And in each one of those things, when you start to compare, what happens is that envy and jealousy starts to brood in your lives and you struggle because it doesn't seem fair. And you ask those big questions, God, why is it so easy for them and yet it's always seemed so hard for me? We have been working through the Gospel of John for over a year now. And yet last week, while we were doing this, we asked that big question, who is this Jesus that this gospel is talking about? And last week, when we got to the end of John chapter 20, it seemed like that question got wrapped up really nicely when John said that these things were written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in him. And it was such a nice ending that there are many who wonder if John chapter 21 really should be in there at all. There's, there's no evidence that it was ever not a part of the entirety of this gospel. But John 20 is such a clean, nice ending. It seems like we're kind of having a, a delayed ending to the gospel in this extra chapter here of chapter 21. And I will personally confess that in my studies of this chapter throughout this week, it was really difficult to try to figure out what's the message in this chapter for people like us today. And to illustrate some of the struggle in that is, is when you read through the commentaries, what you find is one will find a detail in this chapter and they will say, oh, this detail is the key to unlocking the message of this text. And you'll think, wow, that sounds really good. And then you'll read the next commentary and they'll say, while many people make a big deal out of that particular detail, it really isn't that significant and that's not the message of this chapter. Let me illustrate in just a couple of things to give you a glimpse of my life. So, for example, John mentions in the text that exactly 153 fish were caught. And some people say, wow, that's a really specific number. He must be trying to communicate some sort of symbolic meaning behind that. And so many come up with possible symbolic meanings for that number 153. Or there's in the talk of Jesus with Peter about, do you love me? Jesus asks twice, do you agape me? And Peter responds all three times with, I phileo you. And people, there's a different Greek word for love in that. And many people wonder, oh, is that significant? And as soon as one makes that point, the next commentary comes along and says, well, no, it just was another detail that an eyewitness knew that there was exactly 153 feet fish. And if there was a symbolic meaning, we have no idea what it could possibly be. And others saying that, yeah, there's a different word there for love, but that's just John trying to mix up his language and not being overly repetitive. And so it begs the question, what's the point? What is John trying to communicate in this? And when I'm struggling with that answer, I just go back to the beginning. And let's say, well, what do we know for sure? And let's just look at the basics. And as I ask that question about where do we go from here after Easter resurrection, I found three things in this text that I think we can draw on as our message for this morning. The first one relates to this opening scene. Just after the great events of Easter, Jesus that was crucified and killed has been risen and he's proven that he is alive to his disciples. But then there comes the big question, what now? 
Where do we go from here? And many of us can relate to that. We have these great re, uh, experiences with the Lord. We go to conferences or conventions or, or we see a, a glorious time of worship and our relationship with the Lord is just developed and it grows and we have what we often call these mountaintops experiences with the Lord. But then where do we go from there? And the reality is that even after those great experiences, chores still need to be done. Food still needs to be acquired to eat. Work has to take place. And because of that, what I fear we often do is we divide and we segment our lives. We come to church on Sundays, and this is where we meet with Jesus. This is where we worship the resurrected Lord. But then when we leave this place, that's when we go and deal with the rest of life. And in many ways, we leave Jesus behind at the church, and we go on and we continue with life. But notice, something happens when the disciples move on with their life. They are now back in Galilee, about 75 miles away from Jerusalem, just for uh, help with that distance. It's about the same distance it is from us here to the entrance gate at Yosemite. And they're back in their old neighborhoods. And being back, they say, what do we do now? And they decide to go fishing, as they often do. Peter says, let's go fishing. And the rest are like, all right, let's do it. But they catch nothing throughout the night. And in that frustration, all of a sudden, a man says, hey, kids, did you catch anything? And they're like, no. Being about 100 yards off, he says, why don't you throw the, the nets on the other side, on the right side of the boat? And they do, and when they do, all of a sudden, they've got this great haul of fish. The nets can hardly hold them. And that's when they recognize who it is that was calling them to the shore. Peter, in his excitement, throws on his clothes, jumps in the water, and swims out to Jesus. And there Jesus already has prepared a breakfast for Peter and for the other disciples. And there they sit and they eat. And Jesus, the resurrected Savior, comes to them on the shore of their fishing experience. And even in that, I think there is a wonderful beautiful message. After Easter, after the excitement and the enthusiasm of the resurrected Lord, clearly the climax of his ministry, of this gospel, and of world history, where do we go? And when we go back to our homes, to our work, to our normal mundane lives, the reality is that the risen Jesus shows up there too. That all of a sudden you're having a conversation with your child. All of a sudden an interaction with a co-worker. All of a sudden a new experience of God's blessings and you know Jesus is present and that you're not away from him when you're at work. You're not away from him when you're doing the mundane tasks of life. But that the risen Savior is there with you. And so that's the first encouragement. When we go to normal life, after the glory of the Easter celebration, are we still looking for Jesus to show up? Is that also an area of our work where we are serving him in those mundane tasks? And are we allowing for those holy, unexpected moments for Jesus, the risen Savior, to come and still do a miracle in our lives? 
Well, then the scene moves on. And we have this conversation with Peter. Jesus start, It starts in verse 15 when Jesus asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And there is one of the big, yeah, twins, and they got to follow right after the other. There's another big question and a big debate in this text. When Jesus says, do you love me more than these? What is the these referring to? And so there are some that will say that these are the fish. Do you love me more than your career of being a fisherman? And there is a legitimate sermon that you may have heard that could be preached about how this is a call to not just fish, but to love Jesus more than the fish and to serve him in the building of his kingdom. But actually, I would lean toward and appreciate the arguments that said that the question is not about the fish, but Peter, Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, do you love me more than those other disciples love me? And the reason why I think that that's what Peter, that Jesus is alluding to is because what's very clear is there are many echoes in this text to things that had happened earlier. And the only way to understand this text is by hearing those echoes to what took place, for example, in the upper room. So in verse 20 of our text, there's a very clear allusion to John being next to Jesus in the upper room when they were talking about that betrayal. And what I see when Jesus asks, do you love me more than these, is an also an echo back to that moment when talking about betrayal and denial, Peter, above the other disciples, said that he was going to stand firm. That while the others might leave you or descend you, I love you more than those guys and I will never fail. So Jesus' question is, was that true? What is more is there are other echoes. For example, what verse is it? Verse 9, there is the mention that their breakfast was being cooked over a charcoal fire. That's a significant detail. The only other time that a charcoal fire is ever mentioned in the Gospel of John comes in chapter 18, verse 18, where Peter warmed his hands over a charcoal fire that was in the court of the high priest the very place where he denied Jesus. And then, of course, having three times denied Jesus, Jesus asks him three different times, do you love me? And those three echo one another. And in answering all of those questions, what Peter does is to not say, well, of course, I love you more than these or those other guys. But in his now more humbled state, he doesn't compare himself any longer. But what he does say is, Jesus, you know my heart. And you know that I do love you. And so what we clearly have going on here is Jesus tying up that loose end of the brokenness of the relationship with him and Peter. Don't make any small issue out of it. Peter had made a huge mistake in denying Jesus. He had completely ruined the relationship that had been established and developed over the last several years. He had been another betrayer of his Lord and Savior, and that relationship was broken. But Jesus went to the cross in order to bring forgiveness and healing 
and grace. And this is what it looks like. Jesus going to Peter as an individual who had himself completely destroyed his relationship with God, with, with Jesus, and Jesus saying, I still love you as you still love me. And because of that, even of your mistakes of the past, you're forgiven, and I still have a mission, a calling, a job for you to do, that you are to show your love for me in the way that you serve and bless the church. And again, I think there's a beautiful message in that. This is what grace looks like. And for the many of us who can relate to Peter, who have made huge mistakes in our lives, and we wonder, is God going to be done with us? Have we blown it so far? Have we rejected Jesus and denied him to the point where we are no longer useful in his kingdom? We look at this story and we look at the grace of the risen Jesus that says, I still love you as you love me. And I still have a calling for you, a job for you to do, a service in my kingdom that you are uniquely and specially called to do regardless of your brokenness of the past. And so this is also a celebration of God's grace. But then the scene takes a weird, and not weird, but necessary, a sharp turn. You see, back in that upper room when Peter was talking about this denial, what he had said was, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And that is likely another moment where Peter was speaking far more truth than he actually realized at the time. And when in this shore, having restored Peter to his relationship, Jesus says that Peter will have a day where he will be dressed. And that word could also be translated where he will be bound. And that where his arms will be, he, his hands will be stretched out, which is almost always an allusion to being crucified. And so Peter would follow Jesus and he would lay down his life for him, dying also on a cross. Tradition telling us that he didn't want to be killed just as Jesus was killed, but was crucified upside down in Rome. And that is how Peter ended up dying. But then after that, we are told, well, Peter wanted to know about John. And that line, this other disciple that Jesus loved, and that, that line illuminates what might have been a bit of a rivalry between these two disciples. John did sit closer to Jesus in that upper room and in a society where how close you sat to the seat of honor, that was a position to be envied. Peter was left outside of the house of the high priest, and John used his connections to get into that house and to be present. And when Peter was there inside the courtroom, eventually he did deny Jesus, where John stayed true all the way to the end where he stood at the foot of the cross. And after the resurrection, both Peter and John, in response to the, response to the news that the tomb was empty, took off running, and they were racing and John got to the tomb first, we were told. And so Peter wants to know, if my fate is to die like you died, to be a martyr for you, what about John? And Jesus says, 
Don't worry about that. If it was my will that John Woodward remain until I come, what is that to you? And again, in that rebuke, I think Acts is a bit of an important reminder. And it goes back to what I was hopefully communicating when I carried those twins this morning. In life, there's a lot that we share. And you can see people that go to the same schools, that have very similar upbringing and raisings, that work the same types of jobs, go to the exact same churches, and yet, throughout their lives, their experiences are completely different. The one seems to coast through life, and the other seems to face struggle and trial after trial. And in those comparisons, oftentimes we wonder, God, what are you doing? Why are you up to this? And it doesn't matter how much one is doing better than many other people in the world, as long as they are not doing as good as the Joneses, they want to know, God, why don't you bless me like you bless them? And that can create envy and jealousy or, or pride on the other side and, and pull apart on community. But that's not where our focus ought to be. And in noticing that, we should notice a couple of things. First, let's go back to what is the same. The joy is we are both known equally by God. All who have come to this baptismal font are called by name children of the Lord. All of us are welcomed into the family and all of us should have the desire to serve the Lord however we can. And then we can celebrate our differences. We can acknowledge that I have gifts and talents that you don't have and you are incredibly gifted in areas where I would struggle mightily. But the joy of the community of faith is that we are like a body where while we each have different responsibilities and gifts and talents, we all work together toward that one great goal of serving our Lord. And so maybe God is calling you one person to serve out of your abundance, out of your blessings, to use the gifts and the, and the riches that the Lord has blessed you with in order to fund programs that do great mission work or to serve in incredible ways or to be a blessing to the broader community in that way. And maybe there are others who are called to serve out of their hurt, that having experienced a particular pain or struggle in their life and demonstrating to others what it means to remain faithful and to serve the Lord even out of our pain or to walk by with those who have similar pains, that might be your calling. But in the end, the calling is the same. How is God raising you up to use who you are in order to build his kingdom without worrying about what he's doing with others? And I think that's the third message that we can get from this text. What happens after Easter? After the joyful celebration of the resurrected Lord. And I think there are three things we get from this text. One, while we go back to normal life, normal life is never the same. But Jesus is there in our mundane routine. Look for his presence and use those mundane routines to serve him. Second, we celebrate the ongoing work of his grace. That whenever we fall, no matter how great, when we repent and turn back to Jesus, he is there to say, I forgive you and I still have a work for you to do. 
And then after Easter, we go and we build God's kingdom. We use the unique gifts and talents he's given to us. Regardless of whatever life, he's path he's put other people on, we say, God, whatever I am, whatever mission, whatever calling you have given me, I am going to serve you to the best of my ability until that day comes when you do call me home, whenever that day might be. Who is this Jesus? He is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, how do we respond? We respond by looking for him, by celebrating his grace, and serving him with our gifts and talents. And in many ways, that's exactly where we're going to transition to in our Lenten series that begins next week. And I hope all of you will come back as we begin that journey together. Let's have a word of prayer together, though, first. Father in heaven, we celebrate you for the resurrected Christ that you are, for the victory that you won over the grave. And in that, we thank you that we go on with our lives and have had many opportunities to encounter you, to experience you, to know you for the God that you are. Lord, I pray that we would, in all of our work, look for you and serve you. I pray that we would know of your grace and the deeper experience we have in your healing call. I pray that we would hear that call and serve you and keep repenting of our sins and knowing of your forgiveness. And then I pray, Lord, that in whatever path of life you have for us as an individual, that we would humbly serve you to the best of our ability in that path. That whether and however we are blessed or called, that we would use our unique gifts and talents in order to serve you in all that we are. Thank you for the God that you are. May we not only proclaim that with our lips, but may we demonstrate that in the lives that we now go forth to live. This we pray in the name of Jesus the Christ, the risen Savior. Amen.